Hello. Hey, can you hear me all right? I can hear you. Sweet. Oh, we are recording. Everything is good. Fantastic. I've been running. Recording right away this time. <laughs> yeah, well, we're always recording right away. It's just like, Please I figured I'd tell you for once. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we got to assume we're always being recorded anyhow, eh? That is our new reality, yeah. That's our new reality. So you have two options, right? You can either basically become a monk and, and only speak when necessary and try to protect your reputation, or you can just kind of, you know, you know, go with it. Just go with it and just say whatever you want all the time mm-hmm. and apologize for nothing, like Trump does. Yeah, well, I was reading a bit about that, and you know, we um, there's a big law that changed in um, I think it was in all of Canada. But correct me if I'm wrong. On Tuesday, have you have you heard about this? The big change one. to police operations on the road. Yes, huge change. Um, and now, uh, now, like you know, like there's been uh, so the change for people who are not aware is now um, the 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 cops don't have to have reasonable suspicion to have you to take a breath analyzer test. Um, this was part of the change to the criminal code uh, regarding impaired driving and cannabis and everything. So uh, they they sneaked in this uh, you know this this change that we they don't need reasonable suspicion anymore. And I'm reading this article where they're kind of hinting that now they might just do it at every stop just because they can mm-hmm. um, I mean that's their new policy eh? isn't that what they were saying is that they're just going I, to as a matter of course basically just breathalyze everyone they stop <laughs> yeah they're, now they're saying well they didn't say it right away like this they said that you know it would like help them do better stop and control like impaired driving which to some extent I guess if you do test everyone you are not going to have a lot of like uh, impaired drivers on the road. So to that extent, I guess they're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this, but, like, yeah. Draconian. I mean, yeah, if you go all draconian, you can basically like, yeah, uh, it, shut anything I, I, down that you want, right? Yeah, and I'm not sure where to... We're, you know, I'm not sure exactly where the line should be drawn here. Um, I don't like giving cops more power, but that's because, you know, I'm an anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have, it's definitely going to be challenged, but then, you know, it's the kind of law that if you challenge doing it, then it's assume it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's the same as like blowing a guilty amount. That sentence did not make sense. <laughs> you want to try again? <laughs> no, it's okay. We'll just leave it there. People know. People have heard me talk. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, you're right. Exactly. Yeah, if you, well, obviously, yeah, if you if you reject it, then you're presumed to be intoxicated. That's the that's the standard for the current system. Where yeah. if if the uh, police has uh, a general suspicion, a reasonable suspicion that you're drinking, then they are allowed to test you. Yeah, uh, I imagine they'll maintain that same standard. Of course, the whole point of of the first in the first instance is that there were other signs that showed you were intoxicated, which is why you were stopped in the first place, right? Whereas now, it's going to be a, a general blanket of everybody, so yeah. there's going to be a lot more grounds for bringing a suit against the police, right? Hmm. Yeah, and I feel like if that's, I know, we'll see how this goes in court when this gets inevitably challenged. Um, um, 
But like if if the law just says that like you can be stopped at any point and you always need to like you know just build it build it in a car so you reduce the number of interactions that people have with the police because ultimately um, the police has not shown to be very great at building trust with its interaction <laughs> with the public. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. If it, if if it's if it's confirmed that they can actually do this, it just becomes part of like Canadian culture that cops can stop you anytime to blow it in. I'm not advocating for it, by the way. I'm saying <laughs> if it becomes it, let's simplify it. Like you know, let's just make it part of the starting process of a car. Done. Yeah, you might as well, right? You might as well have right, that system. It's going to be used alcoholics are given so that they can. I mean, the technology already exists, right? To be able to have it. Yeah starter that's based on a breathalyzer system it'd be a pretty massive inconvenience if everybody had to <laughs> blow in their car every time before starting their car because uh, like, ultimately like they like of course of course it's usually like to say that it's for impaired driving and and whatever but it's it's in and it's uh, technically it's not really that part i have an issue with it's yeah. the the um it's the potential for abuse of this of like whenever they want to stop anyone now they have a reason and a tool to do so and yeah. then that that can lead to you know whatever other charges they can lay because whatever it's um we'll see how it goes it's very new it's been uh we've been living um we've been living with this for less than 24 hours yeah so, so you think that they'll maybe use this that that they now have the right to test anyone you think they'll use it as a pretext for stopping people for other reasons of course they will yeah. oh of course they will um, like, you know, like they're, uh, they want to see if that guy's dealing pot or, you know, and then they're gonna, they're gonna like rest him on the, oh, we're just testing you out. Yeah. And then, oh, well, it smells like weed in here. Well, mm-hmm. I guess in that case, they'd be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have an example that come to mind right now. Well, I guess, you know, like, um, I don't know. It can be tons of things. Like you just drive around because you got nothing to do, and then um, and then they stop you to check and whatever. And then you have, you know, you know how it goes. You know mm-hmm. how it goes. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a good citizen, but I I, I don't like to give um, like open like you know a blank check to the police. Yeah, giving them just more reasons to be able to stop people. Because they already have a few tools. Like they can if they follow you all. You know, there was re- I was watching this documentary. Um, and by documentary, I mean um, YouTube conference. <laughs> 30 second YouTube uh, <laughs> fake documentary. It was more than 30 minutes, so that gives it some, some you know, credibility. Yeah. But no, it was just a cop saying that, like, when you, when you start following someone, right, when you start trailing someone, inevitably, within the scope of a single day, inevitably they're going to do something illegal, and that gives you, like, a reason to stop them. So, anyway. I'm not sure. There was a point initially to this, but now I've, you know, I'm, I'm a bit lost now. Yeah. So uh, how you been, buddy? I've been good. I've been good. We have we've been, you know, it's good that you're like bringing stuff up right off the back. There's so many stories <laughs> that happened since we last <laughs> talked. Right. Uh, there was a few. What's uh, what marked what? So we talked about two weeks ago, right? Yeah. Pretty much. Like, about two weeks ago. About so that. what happened in the last two weeks? Because I've, uh, I mean, I've read the news, but my my memory's bad. <laughs> well, breaking news today is that there's going to be some sort of bailout for the oil industry. Oh yeah, yeah, but like it's a billion dollar. Yeah, it's like one point six billion dollars or something like that yeah. i don't know I'll any of the details have you seen what the details of that policy seen, I've, I've seen the amount and where it would come from but yeah. like alberta's deficit this year is projected to be what seven billion like i'm not saying the one billion is not going to do anything yeah 
It's just a drop but, in the bucket. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you know what? Like, it, it, this is tied. This whole thing, at least, it's, you know, it's this whole saga with like Alberta and Alberta against BC. And then I was reading about uh, the the mayor of Calgary getting booed for using French in a speech today. Yeah. So, since the um, since the premier meeting. Uh, Nutley and Legault are not, well, you know, basically Quebec and Alberta are just angry at each other. Yeah. Or the anger seems to go only one way so far. So <laughs> I'm not going to say which way. Yeah. Well, but, you know, yeah. it's to be expected, right? If you're, if you're losing out, if you're, if you feel like you're losing in a situation, you're probably going to be more virulent than if you feel like you're getting an okay deal out of the situation, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. And then, uh, anyway, there's two different topics. First is the bailout for the federal government. Then there's the whole uh, equalization payment, because December, I guess, is when they update their thing. Yeah. And then it, it makes everyone angry. Everyone, yeah. <laughs> um, Pretty much everyone. You know I love equalization, but we can first address, what do you think? Do you think the federal government should be bailing out the oil companies? Do I think they should be? I don't, yeah. know. I don't know. I don't know about like normative questions about like what you should or shouldn't do. Just All right. uh, I just kind of like I like more analytical views. Like if you mean like should they in order to survive, I would say probably they need to. Yeah. Because they did make some good gains in Alberta in 2015. That's the liberals I'm talking about. And if they yeah. don't show that they're listening to the concerns of of uh, Albertans then they are very liable to lose all those gains and for it to roll back. I think it might be a little t too little too late kind of situation. Yeah. I don't I know what you think about that, yeah. Well, he's already, there was already, you mentioned it like he's doing it for perhaps political game, perhaps, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, there's, already, there's already been a big blow uh, in Alberta just over the last year, yeah. right? Like when the situation started going wrong. And that was like two years ago when it really started like dipping. Yeah. And then, um, so I think the blow has been done. I don't know if he's gonna, like, perhaps it's about salvaging it and not losing it all. But like, I think Alberta is gonna go back on the conservative train pretty hard. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think there's a lot of resentment. I don't feel like people in Alberta think they're getting enough out of the government compared to what they're pitching in through, even if it's just a perception thing, even if it's not in reality, <laughs> you're right. Just like whenever equalization gets reestablished every year, whenever the new benchmarks are set, it's just, it's just tailor made for people to be upset for mm -hmm. half the country to be infuriated. That. Do you read, um, do you read French media? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. There's uh, there's the magazine L'Actualité who just had today they published this thing and it's like this this long economical um, an analysis of Alberta yeah and the title the title you know those titles that have questions in it like is like and then you pose a question the answer is all usually no uh, the, title, <laughs> yeah. the title is is Alberta um, uh, most mismanaged province yeah I did see that title actually. And, uh, so, you know, and it's, it's obviously like as a kind of an answer to the whole like equalization and y'all, you know, Quebec gets more and we pay more and whatever. 
Um, but it does it does a fairly good job. At, like it establishes. I, I won't call the entire thing, but there's a few good points that it made. And one of these points was, um, you know, Alberta now is a, has a deficit in the government, but they're still taxing their the Albertans at a rate that is much much lower like two-thirds of the national average. Mm-hmm. And so there's an argument to be made that, like, yes, like, you can you can claim that, you know, you need more money from the federal government and you have a deficit in government, but if you tax people at the average rate, you'd get, uh, I forget how much, how much number it was, but, like, I think $40 billion, and they have a $7 billion deficit. Mm-hmm. So, like, so there's, you know, like, th- I thought that was a, a valid point to be made. <laughs> so I, I think we should uh, take a step back for a second for listeners who don't really understand how equalization works. Oh, um, <laughs> stop talking. Not everyone's... Dirty to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not everyone has a, like a big swole brain like you. Uh, some people, they, they don't, they don't know the basics of it. So, um, <laughs> It's complicated, right? It's a complicated formula. It's got exceptions to everything, and it's it's done. It's calculated in a certain way that would be complicated to explain. But if you wanted to sum it up in a real quick way, you could say basically, in order to ensure that there are basic standards, this is the theory anyway, in order to ensure that there are basic standards for all Canadians, there is a redistributive program called equalization and what equalization aspires to do is to look at not what provincial governments actually collect and spend but what their potential to collect and spend is so what you're saying about how people see it as unfair that alberta has to pay into equalization and send money to other provinces while it's experiencing a deficit. The calculation occurred because they do have this potential to raise their taxes to a level that would be equivalent to other parts of the country, and they wouldn't have that deficit. It's mm-hmm. a good explanation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's um, yeah, yeah, and then uh, the general contentions that people have with equalization is one it's always the same provinces that receive money um two uh one of those provinces receives what 70 percent 75 percent of the entire program Mm -hmm. uh, which which is quebec um and so it's you know like it's always it's so it's i think it's a ballpark of like eight nine ten billion dollars something like that yeah it's not like it's not huge for a provincial budget but it's it's huge for my perspective um (laughs) yeah it all depends on who you are right and if you're just your average person then you see billions of dollars every year going to another place that would be big to you even if the grand scheme of a budget is pretty small and that's the third thing is like when uh like people see it as being their money being going elsewhere uh and uh and the problem comes when in this specific instance, it's because one of the things is Quebec doesn't want to let the pipeline be built on its territory. Yeah. Alberta, is they're especially angry that they're sending money to Quebec because they see them as ungrateful. Yeah. And they, they see this fact that basically because there are no pipelines, mm-hmm. uh, their oil sells for considerably less than it would otherwise based on the international price for oil. 
And so they see it as sort of a double an insult. Not only are they ungrateful, but they're they're hampering the very mechanism that creates the wealth that then gets transferred through equalization. Yeah, there's a few. I have a few issues with that. Okay. <laughs> well, one, if Quebec was only after this, uh, hang on, you'll have to pause this. My dog's eating something. Okay. <laughs> so I have a couple issues with that. Yeah. One is if Quebec was only after that free money that comes from Albertan oil, yeah. they would be really, they have a really strong incentive to make sure Alberta makes as much money as possible. Yeah. Because it would increase tremendously their, like if the national average increases with Quebec stays the same, which it would under like an oil boom in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, then, then Quebec is, is, is supposed to receive more equalization pay. Mm-hmm. So more easy money doing nothing. Yeah. So first, first, you know, so if, you know, obviously there's a, I, I find there's a, there's a faulty logic there. Well, I guess but, the the retort to that would be that not only are they ungrateful, but they're so stupid they don't even see <laughs> where the money comes from. <laughs> okay, I don't have, I don't have retort to, uh, to. <laughs> Another problem I have with it is uh, it's always seen as like governments are paying governments. It, there's no like when you pay your tax bill as a Canadian citizen, uh, you don't. It's not itemized to that level, right? So, yeah. so the money that goes to equalization payment uh, is federal money collected yeah. from federal taxpayers, and it's money the federal government would collect. Anyway, mm-hmm. regardless if there was an equalization payment program or not, they don't have a choice to have one. But let's say, let's say one day we change our constitution and then that, that would, the program ends, you would still collect that money from Albertan taxpayers. Yeah. So it's not, it's not or any, anywhere else. And so it, I think it's, and the federal government ultimately is the one that decides the, the, the size of the equalization payments and, uh, who decides the formula to, um, to this for distribution. So ultimately, like to to try to use it as an interprovincial feud, I think it's missing a key step in the process. Yeah, that's exactly right. The fact that it's an actual program and that it's easily identifiable and that it recurs year after year mm-hmm. really creates a lot of weaknesses in terms of perception. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just say wrote, you know, increased the marginal tax rate on the highest end of the income spectrum, you would be disproportionately affecting a high income country, uh, province rather like Alberta. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then you, if you took that money, say, and invested it in some sort of local economic development program, which the federal mm-hmm. government also does, it mm-hmm. would not get the same kind of attention. It might get, you know, some kind of mm-hmm. uh, grievance brought up by someone but it would die it wouldn't have the same kind of brand recognition that you get with equalization payments yeah and then yeah you yeah exactly and the um and what i find especially what i am especially um not angry it's not what i criticize the most in this whole thing is that this misunderstanding of what equalization is is used to make cheap political gains um, at the risk of our national unity. And mm-hmm. I, I can, you know, like the, one of the persons who's screaming the loudest right now is Jason Kenney in Alberta. Yeah. But he was part of the government that last reviewed the formula of the equalization payment. So he's well aware of how it works and it's actually his doing the results that we see now. Yeah. 
And and yet because that's a popular political message, he's bashing on the Quebec government, and now you see the you know you see rise in anti-French sentiments, and Alberta's now the super sympathetic province to the French people already. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 for me, it threatens the sense of, and then the reaction in Quebec is like, well, fuck him. I think that's the first swear of this episode. Yeah, um, <laughs> gotta earn that tag. Gotta earn that tag. <laughs> and. Um, and ultimately, I think as a country, we lose when we, you know, when we we create those tears in the sort of like, you know, like it's it's never been easy. Yeah. But I think it it's like any any work, it's a constant effort of everyone to make it work. Mm-hmm. And then when you have people that start feeling disenfranchised, it starts tearing itself apart. Yeah, and it's 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 you know it's even more confusing. For people in Ontario, I think, because Ontario's recently slipped into have not status the past, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe half a decade. Yeah. And, um, but then Ontario also still continues to provide equalization payments. So it falls into like a weird, it oscillates in this weird zone where people are confused. So wait, we, ha- we don't have money, but we're still a net contributor to equalization. Yeah. What, what is going on here? What is wrong with this? <laughs> it's such a poorly. I think what I'm trying to get at is it's such a poorly explained program to the general yeah. public that yeah. this sort. It's so easy for politicians to be able to exploit it as a, yeah. a divisive issue. But those politicians, they know how the program works, yeah. and they still do it. Yeah. And that's why it becomes very disingenuous and where I have like a real concern with because it's 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 basically lying to people like it's not lying. It's not like telling them a lie, but it's 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 acting in a way that confirms their misbeliefs. Yeah. And, and I, I think as someone who I, when you know you have anyway, I have a big issue with this. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's basically what career politicians do, right? Oh it's just it's something that's. It's it's the perfect program really to cater to a, a, a political opportunist, to a career political opportunist, and I don't think that's ever going to change. I don't think we'll ever get to a situation where um, there's any kind of sympathy for equalization or a, a, a genuine interest to understand what's going on with the program, why it exists. I think it'll continue to exist just mm-hmm. because it's so beneficial to certain regions of the country and like you said it's it's such a minor even though it's it inflames the passions it's such a minor amount in actual dollar terms mm-hmm. and uh yeah i think it's just going to kind of be this weird status quo where it's either un- misunderstood hated but will continue to exist in perpetuity <laughs> well, and, and or the the constitution in eighty two says we need to have some sort of redistribution for that purpose so like mm. so and so that's why and and people who complain about equalization and i'm I'm, I'm targeting Jason Kenny specifically yeah. because he knows and he's <laughs> he knows he knows what he's doing and um like the solution to an equalization, if equalize, because they don't really say equalization is great. It's the formula that needs to change. Like that's not really like the nuance that they want to bring. They just yeah. like want to bash the entire program. Yeah. But the only solution to it is to open the constitution, which they don't want to do either. So if they're kind of caught in this. We complain about this byproduct of a thing that we don't want to touch. And it's like, well, you know, it's disingenuous. 
So what what does the Constitution say about redistribution? Does it, it say that it has to have like some sort of actual like dedicated program, or does it just have to be no, on the whole that? It, it says there needs to be a um, some level of redistribution. It doesn't say it needs to be causation payments or whatever. It just says that uh, one of the purpose of the of the federation is to like you know make sure nobody falls too too much behind. Mm. And so um, so so then it was translated in 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 government. Um, uh, talk as like the equalization program. Yeah. Um, the, the, the constitution gives the broader principle. Yeah. But, but, but we couldn't just abolish it. It needs to be replaced with something else. Yeah. Well, I mean, that would be a good way of going about it. If you wanted to get rid of it, it would be just basically to create something that had. Yeah. Create something heat. else. Create something else. But this, but you, you can't escape this idea that if you're doing really well, um, then, you know, you have a duty toward people who are not doing so well, yeah. whether you like them or not. But but you know what? And I'll, I'll, I there was also something I read in this actualité um, uh, article that I thought was like really um, like give me some empathy for Albertans. The average uh, and the average income within a few years in Alberta, I think it was between 2011 and 2016, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, went from ninety thousand dollars a year to about seventy five thousand dollars a year. Oh, that's a catastrophic drop. Which yeah. is huge. <laughs> it's the average as well. And then, and then they saw their unemployment uh, go up from some really low amount to now. I think they're around the national average or maybe yeah. a bit above. Um, so I, I, I think really the the hurt comes from how sudden those changes were. Um, and and it doesn't if if you know like. It doesn't help an Albertan lost their is lost uh, their job if I tell them, "Well, you had it really good before. Yeah. Now you have it, then you still Hope have it better." But they're just <laughs> like, "Yeah, just, you know, just go fuck yourself." Because like yeah. it, it's very true. It, in the short term, it's a very sudden adjustment. And yeah, so, I'm noticing a lot of um, a lot of um, bitterness on the, the non-Alberta side of people who are basically more or less mocking them for having not not having invested in alternative industries during the yeah. boom times and there, there's some merit in the criticism too mm-hmm. but like I see there's kind of like a there's a merit in the criticism but that that's not what I'm seeing what I'm seeing is a lot of a lot of uh, schadenfreude yeah yeah like, I try not to do in schadenfreude because not at like, all. <laughs> well, it's it's not useful. Yeah. Like, I I still do it. I'm sure there's ton of evidence of me doing it whilst being recorded <laughs> on the podcast. But like, yeah, um, well, some people are more no, deserving I do, than I, others. I don't want to blame Albertans for how they feel. It's just you know, it's this sort of situation where I feel our leaders have a duty to better explain what's happening yeah. instead of letting resentment build. And now resentment's building on both sides for valid reasons, mm-hmm. and it's just not productive. Yeah. Like, we need someone to lead. I mean, the problem is that, you know, it's the same problem with any anything in politics, is that the more complicated it is, the less likely it is to be explained by politicians, just because people have so little time to dedicate to politics in the first place, that... that it just It's like in a Darwinian sense, which is kind of how our politics operate, it's so much easier to be the Jason Kenny guy who demonizes something that's complicated than it is to be the the person who works to explain something. 
Well, what's the what's the internet quote? The um, the order of magnitude to debunk bullshit is like so much higher than just creating it. Yeah. Like, creating bullshit doesn't take much time nor thought. Debunking bullshit takes a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. There's that saying that uh, that a lie will travel around the world before the truth has time to put on its shoes. Yeah. yeah. And that's uh, I don't know, like how like it's an interesting. It's an interesting ethical uh, question to ask yourself. Like, yeah. like we, we, we mostly, and I, for a while that I've been very rough or very like rigid on this. I was like, politics job is to represent only. Okay. But clear, clearly there's also a teaching part to it, I think. need to lead, yeah. To lead, right? And then especially, especially when things get... And and I think that that this mandate has been a bit lost, and that explains a lot of the general confusion about just politics in general, but also about society and what we need to do. And anyway, there's a it's an interesting ethical discussion. That really does go back sort of the origins of democracy in, in the early days, whether it was ancient Greece or the Roman Republic. It was always there was a huge emphasis on trying to make a case for something and convince people, mm-hmm. and trying to be like a, an actual leader rather than just just uh, appealing to the mob. I mean, that was the criticisms that came later. People who were described as tyrants, like Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. it was because he was, he was, you know, the original populist type. And he was, yeah. he, um, he, he basically, I mean, that's why he was so popular. That's why when he was murdered, you know, the people, the senators thought that, that the people would be, delighted that a tyrant had been killed and instead it, it just descended Rome into chaos because he was so popular. He was so keen to follow the, the general sentiment, the, the, um, the opinion of the mob. And so if that case is instructive, that's sort of a dangerous idea for where <laughs> the world, the democratic world might be going. Right. And we, we've, this actually, this, this moves pretty smoothly into the next thing that I wanted to talk about today, which is the sort of the pressure that's coming down on the last remaining neoliberals of the world, basically. You know, when we, when we started podcasting a while ago in the early iterations of our show, neoliberalism was sort of a, it was the Francis Fukuyama type end of history idea. There was never a doubt amongst right-thinking people that Hillary Clinton was going to lose the election to Donald Trump. And then that happened, and there were either increased or continuations of the populist wave that went around the world, a lot of it in the aftermath of the economic crisis, especially in Europe, where a lot of countries were suffering under massive debt loads, right? And that's that's just continued... Recently, we saw Brazil was a major change mm-hmm. there, where, where a, a right-wing populist managed to to take a, control of the government there, and you know a very Trumpian type um, right-wing populist as well. And so, at that point, so many of the dominoes had fallen in the world. What was left? And if you look at who liberals in the world, I don't mean liberals as in the liberal party. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. classical liberal types, people who, um, 
you know, promote globalization and free markets and liberal democracy, those kind of liberals. The people mm -hmm. who are they're talking about, the only people who are left is uh, the president of France, Macron, and uh, Justin Trudeau. And what I thought was interesting in the last few weeks was Merkel? that... Yeah, Merkel, but she's retiring, right? Yeah. So she's kind of like, uh, it's like kind of a lame duck government. Yeah. Um, so no one's quite sure where Germany is going to go. Um, they've certainly been seeing some populist streaks as well. You could say maybe the UK a little bit, but then they had Brexit and they have a Tory government that is pretty committed to pursuing Brexit, even though it's filled with a lot of neoliberal type of politicians yeah so i think I, the uk uk's a, uh, yeah i i agree uk's going about to change drastically either way but yeah um so really i think that only leaves canada and france left and in both cases in the last couple of weeks there's been significant pressure mm -hmm. on both of those political movements and we were just talking about the one in canada which is the resentment from out west over equalization, over not building pipelines, that sort of thing. And then much more dramatic has been what's been going on in France with the Gilets Jaunes. Yeah. That has been really interesting because in, in the Canadian case, there's a lot of overlap between conservatism, the conservative party and the, uh, sort of contempt for Justin Trudeau, but mm -hmm. in France, it's very much been a broad-based movement that has drawn from people across the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. There are people who support uh, Le Pen, the, the right-wing uh, candidate. There are people who support Mélenchon, the left-wing, and then there are people who are apolitical, which I think is probably the core of the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when yeah, it's because the the it started with a single issue, but then people tacked onto it, and it became this sort of general discontent, uh, of which people from many different political colors are from. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's yeah, I mean, it's it's it seems to have the more it's developed, it seems to have less and less to do with the actual flashpoint which was the gas tax yeah and that's the, the what's problem with these, that's yeah sorry well, they, no sorry i cut you off i'm uh but like the problem with these groups that are like it, it it there's two two facts about these big groups one it shows like a general discontent something is wrong with the social contract at this point uh, but the other fact is because they're a group of coming of like a bunch of different positions, uh, it's, they, they're, they're having a really hard time to, uh, enunciate a specific action strategy to get out of this or one, uh, or a new vision because nobody can really agree on where to go from there. So it's kind of this group that says it's, something is wrong. And then, um, it becomes really hard to get out of these crises. Yeah. It's, it's, it's truly a grassroots phenomenon because what they're getting from a lot of the people on the streets who are talking about, why are you here? Why are you riding? Why are you involved in this movement? A lot of time it's the simple, um, 
answer of, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills from week to week, from month to month. I have to worry about whether I'll have a place to live. Um, I don't see any future possible with the current situation. So it's not really like there's any kind of political vision behind that. It's just, I, there's something severely wrong here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are we going to do? And then it just sort of happened instead of getting involved in politics. It's just sort of an atavistic reaction of there's something wrong here. So we, we're going to riot. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's a few things and they're not all in Macron's interest, but like the one way to calm a crisis like this is an electoral is a camp, electoral campaign. Like it 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 cuts the grassroots movement because it 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 um it redirects the energy toward you know this sort of political discourse. Yeah. But Macron doesn't want to do this, right? Like he wants to he doesn't want to go into. Um, He's been, you know, even when when it first started out. And I think when he thought it could be maybe tamped down by the police and then it would just fade away because there because like you say, there's no actual organization or leadership behind it. And then when it didn't, when it kept going, that's only when he got enough pressure to consider going back on his political project, which is basically a continuation of what was happening both under the uh, conservative governments and then under the socialist government that preceded Macron. Mm-hmm. He, he was basically going to be the final nail in the coffin of France's alternative to the neoliberal state. But with a nicer face than Sarkozy, so people were happy, actually. <laughs> no, it's true. He was yeah. elected, but he was elected as this, he's neither. Oh, you're exactly he was right. elected as this reformist. And it's the same, you know, again, it goes back to the same comparison with our Justin Trudeau. It's the same exactly. idea. Is that, like, yeah. the, the, the amount of media attention dedicated to Trudeau's, either his looks, his youth, or his style... Um, have to be at least equivalent to whatever ideas he'd propose. Probably greater, I would say. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and Trudeau did was elected as a reformist, and then did not did not really deliver. Yeah, I mean, he tried. Uh, uh, Trudeau, I give him some credit on some stuff. Anyway, but yeah, like I don't want to. I, I know if we start talking about Trudeau, we're gonna diverge, diverge from from the topic. Yeah. Um. Yeah, well, you, so you mentioned, so your point is that, um, uh, liberalism, uh, in, in, in international relations theory is, is losing out to, uh, populistic movement. Yeah. Do you, have you, have you thought about what could be causing this? Uh, it seems to be, if it's, if the concerns are primarily economic, then it tends to be, not exclusively, but it tends to go towards further left movements. Uh-huh. And so I think that's to the benefit. France, I'd say, is like sort of in the middle between having to deal with the refugee crisis and having to deal with economic issues. Yeah. But in other places where it's clearly mainly economic issues, like, say, Greece, yeah, it, it tends to favor the left, left-wing populace. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, when it's a, a question of either 
some kind of security issue, whether it's the refugee crisis or whether it's crime, then it tends to benefit right-wing populists like like uh, the Brazilian election that we saw. Um, so I think those are the two primary motivating factors, either security on the one hand uh, or just the the inherent inequality that occurs from globalization, which we are now seeing the consequences of. Yeah, yeah, I think you have some good points there. I, I certainly blame uh, the growing um, income inequality. It's been growing for 25 years now. Um, yeah, I mean, I listen to some neoliberal podcasts, and the hosts are perplexed at the concept that a social species like human beings that have ingrained in them biologically a contempt for unjust inequality would somehow not react negatively to inequality, even if there was a general increase in wealth. So... yeah. Like so, I, I I just don't think this this thesis that they propose actually is apparent in reality, because you can look at desperately poor um, uh, societies, right? Like you yeah. can look at a hunter gatherer society, or you can look at an agricultural society, societies that are poorer than the poorest person in a rich country. Yeah. As the general norm. And yet these people have general, in in many cases, have greater contentment than relatively rich people in in unequal societies. Mm -hmm. It's just just a fact that human beings value equality uh, in and of itself, regardless of wealth accumulation. I think we're, yeah, it's interesting what you mentioned about these these innate uh, feelings, because I think we... um, I think it's a very primal feel, like th- this feeling of justice. I think we have it, especially toward ourselves. We don't really care about others until, it, on the, you know, it's a bit more learned. But like, if you feel that you've been wronged, mm-hmm. we, it, it's a, it's a very strong feeling that everyone has had. Um, and it's um, it, then the action to when you feel wrong, the action to correct being wrong is to take, you know, revenge or to take, you know, mm-hmm. get even. Or even just seek justice, you know, because that's probably how you would think about it in your mind. You wouldn't think about it that you're the bad guy. You think about it that you're the one who's evening the yeah. the, the score. Yeah, and then, uh, but I think when you feel, well, I think it just, yeah, when you when you feel that you have to get even because you were wrong, I think it justifies a lot of those asocial behaviors. And then I think as a whole, anyway, you, you're absolutely right. In equal societies, generally we'll see more crime, uh, more social unrest. Um, and I feel now like that should be something we talk about. Very few, and it's unfortunate, very few politicians have picked it up because I made, maybe it doesn't win them points. Um, but I feel a lot of what you mentioned, the populism, uh, it's, it's, I don't know, it's this disinvolvement from, um, it's this disinvolvement from the other, and that leads to more fracture, and fracture leads to trouble. Yeah. I'm yeah. simplistic in my way to see it. <laughs> yeah, at its root, at its root, that's it. That's it. 
Um, it, it, it's human beings also just don't do well in chaotic times, and we're going through such massive upheaval at the moment in so many ways that I, I think a lot of people psychologically just don't know how to process it. I think we're going through such massive technological changes on a scale that is unparalleled in human history. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously no way that the human animal can biologically adapt to it and evolve. Can't We can't use our evolutionary mechanism in this situation to deal with something like social media, which clearly has had just immense impacts on how people view the world. Yeah. Just the speed of information. You mentioned that, like a like and go around the world for the truth and put this. I really like that quote because you're right. Like one, and I'm very pro free information, but the speed at which information travels allows, um, inaccuracies to just, just go rampant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, the inaccuracies become in a mass democracy where there's no real necessity to be well informed. You're, I think, more likely to have the maybe not the majority, but maybe a plurality, especially a plurality of voters, mm -hmm. people who actually take the time to go out and who are motivated by emotions. You're going to see a lot of a lot of manipulation. That is very successful, I think, and I, I really, I can't think of any way that that can be countered with a more, go, you know, going back to the equalization talk, just how in the mechanisms that people use to get their political information, how anyone is going to draw attention with a detailed explanation of how equalization works versus <laughs> an emotional argument that, hey, we're being ripped off or, hey, these guys yeah. are using this as a, a way to demean us in our society and our people. We need a new Bill Nye, but for politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and you know what? I'll, I... See, I like I like this topic. So you know, I've I've mentioned last episode I was involved in a political campaign mm -hmm. um, recently, and part of doing a political campaign is knocking on a lot of doors. Yeah. I've locked I've knocked on a lot of doors. People are interested and people are knowledgeable, and yet the aggregate makes dumb decisions. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure, you know, like the like there's I feel there's enough individual, well intentioned, well knowledgeable. Um, people in our system that it should work, and yeah. yet it doesn't. Or you know, so there's something. I think there's a disconnect between the individual and the the aggregate. But so, I, I can't I can't really pinpoint it. So do you have, if you had to guess, what what do you think would be causing that? Do you think it's the fact that maybe, you know, in the case you, you volunteered on a municipal campaign, in that case, in some areas, um, people voted at a rate of. 30%. Um, so maybe you're talking to a lot of people who just don't see the value in voting. Maybe the people who did vote either lied to you or didn't open their door in the first place or whatever, because it's such a small sample size based on, you know. Yeah, well, it brings this idea that perhaps there's a, perhaps there's a lot of people who vote and yet refuse to... Um, talk about why they vote, how they vote, what they believe. 
I think this is maybe perhaps a substantial amount of people who vote without ever asking themselves what they should, and since they refuse to engage in it to some sort of like um, I don't know illusion of uh, I don't know I'm not, perhaps that's this I don't I don't I don't believe though that this is the majority. I think there's some people who vote unknowingly. Yeah. Um, and I, that, that's part of democracy. But I don't think it's the majority. So I'm not sure. Like, the, the, I think there's sev- perhaps several distinct explanations. Yeah. Uh, well, how much do you think it, it's a case of a limit of choices, especially in a party system where you have basically, you have two parties that can win, basically. You have maybe... Three yeah. parties that can influence the government. I think it's, I think it's the over reliance on wedge issues. Perhaps that's, I think that's one of the things. So yeah. a wedge issue, a wedge issue is um, for people who do not know. Um, uh, a wedge issue is like uh, when you run a campaign. Uh, a wedge issue is an issue in which everyone will stick, and that will decide how they vote, regardless of the rest of the stuff. So, for instance, um, uh, what was the wedge issue in the Ontario politics? It was a boring campaign. There was none. Um, um, well, there was sex ed was a big one, which is uh, ongoing. Yeah. Okay. So sex There's... ed is a good example. Sex ed is a wedge issue. So for some people, uh, the position on sex or sexual education in school is going to determine which way their vote will go, regardless of any other policy that these party would enforce. That's essentially. Would you agree with my definition of wedge yeah. issue? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. It's it's basically the primary. It's what it's what they call in the business. Um, they call it the ballot question. What is uh, the question that someone asks themselves when they go in to mark their vote. And that's what it would be for them. If the wedge yeah. issue would, would become the primary issue that they would base their vote upon. And I guess the and, – and you hear this all the time, right? You, when you speak – especially Christmas is coming up, political conversation with some wine in the – you know, yeah. wine is coming up. <laughs> That's gonna be fun. Huh? Oh, yeah. Always is. Always is. <laughs> and then, and then those conversations, especially when you speak with that uncle that doesn't, you know, believe or do, you know, you kind of get caught in that conversation. It always comes up like the wedge issues is the issues they'll bring up, yep. and they'll be like, "Well, like I'm going. Let's say I'm going to Quebec City. People will be like, well, we need a third bridge.'" And it's like, okay, well, is that the only thing that you care about? Is there other things? And people really can't involve further than the big things. Yeah. And uh, so I think this over-reliance on those, um, on the, uh, perhaps a simpler way to perceive what the political world is, because there's, there's a lot more than one, two, or three issues in a campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. Perhaps, I don't know how to resolve the wedge issue one, though. Like in our la- latest federal election, it was the, the, the hijab. Yeah. Which is... Have you have you heard a lot about hijab problems since the election, Joe? Because I, <laughs> I mean, is our does our society even still exist? Is it, <laughs> has it not crumbled to ashes? Because like that was the whole thing for two months. People talk yeah. about the hijabs, and it's like so that was a wedge issue in this campaign. Um, anyway, y- you get my point. I'm not really lucid tonight. I guess I'm not explaining myself. No, so no, I know exactly what you're saying. And if I could put it another way, it would basically be that. The, our political system has the the appearance of a mass democracy because you have millions of people voting in it. So it looks like it's this great will of the people. But when you break it down into its constituent parts, you realize that it's actually a contest that's decided by a few thousand people. 
in, in two ways. Basically, because we have a we have a um, a riding based system where mm-hmm. you're not voting. It's not like you vote for a party and then the party wins, or you vote for a series of parties and then they have a proportion of the votes given. No, I mean, that's what was proposed in the electoral reform, and it was yeah. shot down by the government. So we're sticking yeah. with the first-past-the-post system, where uh-huh. it's all based on ridings. And that means that you have to win ridings, you don't have to win votes. And it doesn't matter by how much you win that riding. If you win that riding by 90% of the vote, it is the exact same as if you won it by 30% of the vote. So yeah. what this means practically is that what matters is that you win these ridings by a few thousand votes in Mm -hmm. key ridings. Some ridings never change, never will change. Some Mm -hmm. ridings have been the same party for the last 150 years. They they basically don't, they might as well not even exist. They they have no impact and influence in the government. So if you can develop effective wedge issues, what ends up happening is that it it matters way more than whatever the general feeling of the general population is. Mm -hmm. The reason why, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that, that wedge issue that you bring up about the uh, niqab, uh, the burqa didn't, didn't resonate. You know, you could say a lot of things about the government being old and people wanting change and whatever, but if in another instance, it could have very well have won if it targeted the right ridings, if it got people out to vote, because another thing, right, is turnout. That's what decided the 2016 American presidential election was that there was low turnout on both sides. Mm-hmm. And it's just that it was slightly less low in the areas that mattered for Donald Trump. Yeah. Hmm. That's much better said than I did. <laughs> I don't know. I think that was pretty rambling, too. <laughs> no, that's okay. Thanks for, thanks for pointing out, too, that I, I said hijab earlier. It was niqab, obviously. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. think they were quite sure what it was. Cause, uh, you know, it, was, it was a niqab. You mentioned it. I was like, yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're totally right. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're keen on burkas either, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, there was an interesting, like, it's kind of linked to this whole social unease. Um, you know that in the recent, um, for people who don't know yet, I always wanted to bring the Quebec news. So in the yeah. recent provincial election in Quebec, they've elected, I think, nine uh, Quebec Solidaire uh, MNAs. Yeah, it's pretty and uh, and they've been they've been the only like the two parties we've heard from are the government the majority government and those nine dude uh, dudes and dudettes yeah because um, the the regular PQ and PLQ have done fuck all since they got elected yeah anyway uh, there was this big uh, this this uh, Catherine Dorion MNA she's an MNA from Quebec City and uh, she a lot of ink um, as uh, like a lot of news have been printed about her. Because she went into the National Assembly to deliver a speech, uh, and her speech was about how we're growing more isolated, how the sense of communities. It was like those broader political ideas, yeah. Like uh, and saying that like one of like we don't really connect anymore with each other. Uh, the, like the issues about you know the way that wealth is spread, obviously, but like a lot of the issues that we would probably have mentioned on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so a speech that you don't really hear often in a, in a uh, political assembly yeah. uh, and that you would definitely expect from the uh, left uh, minority, like nine people party group. Yeah. 
Nobody talked about what she said. What people talked about is that she wore a T-shirt in the National Assembly. So a T-shirt and a toque (laughs) on her head. Yeah. Uh, Not respecting the well-established decorum of looking like a penguin if you're inside uh, the (laughs) if inside if you're doing politics. So um, and so it was very very interesting, like seeing tons of attacks from everywhere about her not respecting traditions yeah. and nothing at all about her, what her speech was about. Oh my God. That's so, that's so amazing. I mean, that's just like, that couldn't be written more perfectly. Could it? Someone gives, gives a, a substantive speech about how we don't, you know, we don't, we are not willing to address serious things that happen in our society yeah. anymore. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, just the most right. superficial bullshit <laughs> is the counterpoint. Is, yeah, that's essentially what it was. And um, anyway, it's just been like this. But it brings like questions, like because I understand the value of like traditions, right? Yeah. To some extent, like there's like it's a position of power, and so you should you, whatever. I I get those arguments, but also there should be some some merit to the speech. Anyway, because yeah, like she, well, was, I mean, she yeah. was elected, the it's foundation. Well, I mean, what's what's the point of having a democratic assembly? This is what you should start off with. Is it as like a nice thing that is traditional or is it how you govern your society? And I guess that's how you have to decide first. Like, what are we doing with this thing? And if it's, oh, it's, we've always had it. So uh, let's just keep that. If that's your only position on it and then you just want it to look nice, then I guess more power to you. But if you actually care about <laughs> your province oh, being governed well, then maybe the issues should matter more. I like I like your I like your point right there. I'm making a mental note because it will be useful at Christmas this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is but, she is she uh, is she young too? Is that? Yeah, she's like in her early thirties. Yeah. Think. See, you know, boomers they love that they love that shit too. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. like she's, the kids who don't respect traditions and that everything's going to hell. She's thirty six. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm sure, like, it's already. They would already consider her, oh yeah, uh, illegitimate based on her age alone, right? <laughs> yeah, she's seen as the entitlement of the uh, yeah. of the younger generation. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, but it's been um, I don't know, I, it, like regardless if she was right or wrong about her speech, like she did bring some very interesting ideas that like would merit a, a bigger conversation. But anyway. I mean, the same thing happened with Ocasio Cortez, right? When she came to, she was, yeah. she went to DC, and she was talking about, hey, can anyone help me find a uh, place to live because I don't have uh, enough money to be able to afford a place in this ex- really expensive town. Yeah. And then she gets all this flack from people about how, oh, look at this person can't even house themselves, and <laughs> they're supposed to be a representative in Congress. Is this is insanity? This is this is just like the height of of uh, entitlement, millennial entitlement. But you're talking about someone who was a a waitress before she was elected and going to one of the most expensive places in the world to live. Yeah. And it just shows the complete disconnect of people who live in this this bubble, either a generational bubble of people who have accumulated vast sums of wealth or the general uh, lack of understanding that comes with being in a, a city that operates entirely out of the artificiality of power and politics. Yeah, that's... Um... 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I, it definitely shows. I think more people should know about uh, minimum wage jobs before they go into politics, and they should, more people should know about, you know, like having to hunt, find an apartment when you don't have a lot of money, and yeah. all of these like real life concerns that people have. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, in that in that same uh, vein, there's something I want to brought up, bring up that I think I came out maybe a week or so ago about how the rate of inflation for food is going to be pretty high this coming year because there was a really bad crop, bad crop, bad harvest year generally. Yeah, so a lot of staples, a lot of uh, I think potatoes did really badly. A lot of vegetables did really badly. I haven't heard about that. Yeah, so apparently for the average family, the prices are going to be going up by four hundred dollars, and so that's wow. the average. You know, that's you know, there's going to be a lot of families that are paying a lot more than that. How uh, how much is the price of luxury SUV going up by? <laughs> yeah, let's get to the real numbers here. No, my, I guess my point is like when food goes yeah. up, it affects the poorest of us all. Yeah, disproportionately, basically, the the idea is that it might not sound like a lot, four hundred dollars spread out over a, uh, a year, but when you consider that it's a, basically an inelastic good, which inelastic goods mean that you it's an economic term for basically you, you have to buy food regardless of whether you have money or not because you Definitely. die otherwise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, is that what it does? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's fuel for the human body. <laughs> okay. You know, like cars oh, have fuel, the human body. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and 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 it's going to because because food. So basically, if you have a low income and you have to buy this food, then it affects you. It affects a poor person way more than it affects a rich person, just because it's a higher percentage of their income. Yeah, so, there's only so much food you can eat. Yeah, exactly. It's not the rich people aren't buying a thousand times more food in line with their income. <laughs> so um, that should yeah. be interesting. It does seem like if you include, if you include, because there's another economic term. It's called regressive taxation, and it sounds like it's a pejorative, but it's actually just a technical term for whether something uh, affects people disproportionately with a lower income. Mm -hmm. And this federal government is really putting a lot on the taxation with this carbon tax to be able to fund climate mitigation and climate, you know, various climate programs, right? And carbon taxes, again, you know, it's an inelastic good using energy, just like food is. You have to use energy. And so it's a regressive tax as well. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to be interested just to see where things go with mm -hmm. the Canadian economy because, you know, we're also, we're nine years into a bull market, which is basically means nine years of stock market growth. This is, it's due, end. we're due, you know, we're due for another crash. And depending on how artificially inflated the North American economy is, mm -hmm. should be, you know, it, the Canadian economy was kind of saved by a lot of factors that might not save us this time around. And if there's just a perfect storm of all these regressive taxes combined with an inability to equal them out with, with tax rebates, tax credits, 
um, combined with, you know, increases in cost of living, how are Canadians going to react to that? Is there going to be something on par with the sort of the, the populist movements that we've been seeing in Europe? Because we could very much end up in a similar economic circumstance as them. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very bleak way to look at the world, but I think you're, you're very right. In the, yeah, <laughs> it's not, it's not, um, it, 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 it just feels like we're very fragile right now. Yeah. Right. And, um, yeah, it just feels like we're very fragile and then we'll see what comes up. Cause like the reaction when people are fragile, it's, it takes a while for constructive discourse to take over, uh, the noise. Mm-hmm. And now there's a lot of noise. And I think in, in particular, with when it comes to food, we've become very reliant on the international markets to be able to feed ourselves as a country. Yeah. And there's no doubt that food systems are going to be massively interrupted by climate change. And if we don't have some kind of food security system, we're going to have, you know, if, if, if our major markets fail... And and those markets decide to keep the food for themselves, which has happened mm-hmm. in the past. There have been instances where there yeah, been, there's that's a concern. And then within the uh, sorry, it, yeah, I mean, like let's the, say uh, let, let's say America, let's say America decided to elect someone irresponsible. Not that I'm saying they ever would, but let's say they decided to elect someone who was a nationalist. The, uh, they're the world police. They would and, never do that. No, no, no. Let's say they were they were crazy enough to elect a nationalist who thought that there should be walls on the borders and that there should be, uh, you know, an increase in in the military and whatever. Mm-hmm. Let's say they did that, and then there was a catastrophic harvest year, and we get so much of our food stuff from the United States. And what if they just, in the name of national security, Stop the export of food. Mm-hmm. What would that do to your average Canadian who needed to feed themselves? Well, I think in Canada we produce enough food for ourselves, though, but not not very varied. But like we have the staples, we have yeah. a lot of wheat, we, we have, have a lot potential. of like dairy, yeah. we have a lot of like uh, 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 bovine. So like there's a few there's a few things that we do have, but I think I think just the um, I think the, the the real threat is what happens when the U.S. can't import food and can't produce it themselves. Where are they going to look for food? Yeah, that's another good point. Where are they going to look for water is my concern. Yeah, where are they going to look for food and water? Because uh, we is, have a hell of a Perhaps not so much for – perhaps in our old life, like our old age, but like definitely the next generation, should, should that should be – like the, the that should be a very a very strong concern. Yeah. Um, because you know they they would take an extra state. Oh yeah, they could have fifty first. One of the little star could be a little maple leaf. I mean they've done they've definitely done it in the past. They did it with Cuba. They did it with the Philippines. Mm-hmm. These are massive. These are massive states that were once controlled indirectly and directly by the United States. I mean I don't think there'd be any reason why they wouldn't do it again. Yeah. Um, I mean. Yeah. But, just they would they wouldn't need much of a pretext to be able to do it. And we do seem to be hitching a lot of our international relations 
to the United States. I think this this, this segues nicely into some of the international issues that have been happening, like the uh, the our issues with China at the moment. The fact that the Canadian state has opted to side with the rule of law, which enforces American norms, and in this case, actually directly uh, an American arrest warrant based on American policy of sanctioning Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the process, we've offended, deeply offended, the rising power in the world that will no doubt have, you know, huge impacts on our, our yeah. country going well, forward. We, I mean, we had to, because we signed those extradition agreements, we had to decide if we pissed off China or the States. Yeah. So, I mean... I think we, I, I, I agree. It's not great, but it would not have been great for other states either. Yeah. So. It's, it's just ultimately, you know, if you, there, there's, That's why there's we the need options. To close right? our borders, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's the counterpoint, right? That's the counterpoint. That's the counterpoint. The, um, yeah, my counterpoint is we just have to close our borders. That's easy, what I'll, you know, you, it's funny because you make it as a joke, but it is how, a lot of the right-wing populist movements are moving, whether it's, yeah. you know, you look at Europe specifically, if you look at Poland, you look at Hungary, that is basically the policy of these countries now. Yeah. And yeah. if you had a similar movement here, it wouldn't be all that crazy to necessarily be a very realistic, anti liberal, anti-international order government. It might be a little harder because of the overwhelming influence of the United States, but we've certainly pursued policies in the past that the Americans didn't favor, like continuing to recognize the Cuban government, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, but those, those, a lot of those actions were done with uh, seemingly reasonable people in power. Okay. So, so I'm saying that like a, a knee-jerk reaction uh, from a moron is way more likely. Okay. Um, <laughs> and yeah. um, and knee-jerk reactions are g- generally not the best policy course of action. Mm-hmm. Um, like we we definitely disagreed in tons of different things, but like anyway, I think I think right now there's a volatility that that people are very uh, cautious about. Yeah, for sure. There's a there's a there's a volatility, and um, there seems to be a a general inability from the what would you call them like the traditional neoliberal uh, cast of characters who you know they've they've grown up their entire lives under these assumptions that the world is supposed to operate a certain way, yeah. and now that it's not. They don't really know what to do, right? They don't. They don't know how to address this this um, instability. Yeah. Um. This will need to be a question for uh, the next time, Joel. Well, I, I apologize to cut it short. Like no, that. not at all. Um, if you gotta go, hey, you gotta go. I uh, I will wish you uh, happy holidays. Likewise. And uh, and a happy new year. Same.
to you, buddy. I hope uh, I hope the new year brings you joy in your heart, which you're <laughs> sorely lacking. Always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his heart grew three times that year. But... <laughs> Uh, and that is my only wish for you. Well, it's very sweet, and I'm glad we could do this again, and I hope we can do it more often in the new year. Have a, have a very happy holidays, and don't get into too many political fights with your family. No, it's okay. <laughs> I got good political fights after, you know, after you have them a few times, you have to improve, or just yeah. be in a constant loop, and I wanted to escape the loop. Yeah. You can either, you have two, you have two options, really. You can either be belligerent, or you can just shut down. And so it's, it's good that you've taken the belligerent route. <laughs> I like uh, I like to guide people to like what they what they what their position reveals about what they truly believe, and then use what they believe to show you know like you know lead them a little journey. Yeah. We'll see what's how this goes this year. Best of luck. Thank you very much. We'll speak soon. Yeah, I'll talk again soon. Have a good one.